Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, A Curious Experience, by Mark Twain. And to begin with, who is the master? It betrayed him into darting a startled glance at our faces, but that was all. He was serene again in a moment and tranquilly answered, I do not know, sir. You do not know? I do not know. You're sure you do not know? He tried hard to keep his eyes on mine, but the strain was too great. His chin sunk slowly toward his breast and he was silent. He stood there nervously fumbling with a button, an object to command one's pity in spite of his base acts. Presently I broke the stillness with the question, Who are the Holy Alliance? His body shook visibly and he made a slight random gesture with his hands, which to me was like the appeal of a despairing creature for compassion. But he made no sound. He continued to stand with his face bent toward the ground. As we sat gazing at him, waiting for him to speak, we saw the big tears begin to roll down his cheeks. But he remained silent. After a little, I said, You must answer me, my boy, and you must tell me the truth. Who are the Holy Alliance? He wept on in silence. Presently, I said somewhat sharply, Answer the question! He struggled to get command of his voice and then, looking up appealingly, forced the words out between his sobs. Oh, have pity on me, sir. I cannot answer it, for I do not know. What? Indeed, sir, I I am telling the truth. I never have heard of the Holy Alliance till this moment. On my honor, sir, this is so. Good heavens! Look at this second letter of yours! Do you see the words Holy Alliance? What do you say now? He gazed up into my face with the hurt look of one upon whom a great wrong had been wrought, then said feelingly, This is some cruel joke, sir, and how they could play it all upon me, who have tried all I could to do right and never done any harm to anybody. Someone has counterfeited my hand. I never wrote a line of this. I've never seen this letter before. Oh, you unspeakable liar. Here, what do you say to this? And I snatched a sympathetic ink letter from my pocket and thrust it before his eyes. His face turned white, as white as a dead person's. He wavered slightly in his tracks and put his hand against the wall to steady himself. After a moment he asked, in so faint a voice, that it was hardly audible. Have you read it? Our faces must have answered the truth before my lips could get out a false yes, for I distinctly saw the courage come back into that boy's eyes. I waited for him to say something, but he kept silent. So at last I said, Well, what have you to say as to the revelations in this letter? He answered with perfect composure, Nothing, except that they are entirely harmless and innocent. They can hurt nobody. 
I was in something of a corner now, as I couldn't disprove his assertion. I did not exactly know how to proceed. However, an idea came to my relief, and I said, You are sure you know nothing about the Master and the Holy Alliance, and did not write the letter which you say is a forgery? Yes, sir, sure. I slowly drew out the knotted twine string and held it up without speaking. He gazed at it indifferently, then looked at me inquiringly. My patience was sorely taxed. However, I kept my temper down and said in my usual voice, Wicklow, do you see this? Yes, sir. What is it? It seems to be a piece of string. It is a piece of string. Do you recognize it? No, sir, he replied, as calmly as the words could be uttered. His coolness was perfectly wonderful. I paused now for several seconds in order that the silence might add impressiveness to what I was about to say. Then I rose and laid my hand on his shoulder and said gravely, It will do you no good, poor boy, none in the world. This sign to the master, this knotted string, found in one of the guns on the waterfront? Found in the gun? Oh, no, 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 do not say in the gun, but in a crack in the tompion. It must have been in a crack. And down he went on his knees and clasped his hands and lifted up a face that was pitiful to see. So ashy it was and wild with terror. No, it was in the gun. Oh, something has gone wrong. My God, I am lost. And he sprang up and darted this way and that, dodging the hands that were put out to catch him and doing his best to escape from the place. But of course, escape was impossible. Then he flung himself on his knees again, crying with all his might, and clasped me around the legs, and so he clung to me and begged and pleaded, saying, Oh, have pity on me. Oh, be merciful to me. Do not betray me. They would not spare my life a moment. Protect me. Save me. I will confess everything. It took us some time to quiet him down and modify his fright and get him into something like a rational frame of mind. Then I began to question him, he answering humbly with downcast eyes and from time to time swabbing away his constantly flowing tears. So you are at heart a rebel? Yes, sir. And a spy? Yes, sir. And have been acting under distinct orders from outside? Sir. Willingly? Yes, sir. Gladly, perhaps. Yes, sir, it would do no good to deny it. The South is my country, my heart is Southern, and it is all in her cause. Then the tale you told me of your wrongs, and the persecution of your family was made up for this occasion. They, they told me to say it, sir. And you would betray and destroy those who pitied and sheltered you. Do you comprehend how base you are, you poor misguided thing? He replied with sobs only. Well, let that pass business. Who is the colonel, and where is he? He began to cry hard, and tried to beg off from answering. He said he would be killed if he told. I threatened to put him in the dark cell and lock him up if he did not come out with the information. At the same time, I promised to protect him from all harm if he made a clean breast. For all answer, he closed his mouth firmly and put on a stubborn air, 
which I could not bring him out of. At last I started with him, but a single glance into the dark cell converted him. He broke into a passion of weeping and supplicating and declared he would tell everything. So I brought him back, and he named the colonel and described him particularly. Said he would be found at the principal hotel in the town in citizen's dress. I had to threaten him again before he would describe and name the master. Said the master would be found at number 15 Bond Street, New York, passing under the name of R.F. Gaylord. I telegraphed name and description to the chief of police of the metropolis and asked that Gaylord be arrested and held till I could send for him. Now, said I, it seems that there are several of the conspirators outside, presumably in New London. Name and describe them. He named and described three men and two women, all stopping at the principal hotel. I sent out quietly and had them and the colonel arrested and confined in the fort. Next, I want to know all about your three fellow conspirators who are here in the fort. It was about to dodge me with the falsehood, I thought, but I produced the mysterious bits of paper which had been found upon two of them, and this had a salutary effect upon him. I said we had possession of two of the men, and he must point out the third. This frightened him badly, and he cried out, Oh, please don't make me! He would kill me on the spot! I said that was all nonsense. I would have somebody nearby to protect him. I said that was all nonsense. I would have somebody nearby to protect him. And besides, the men should be assembled without arms. I ordered all the raw recruits to be mustered, and then the poor trembling little wretch went out and stepped along the line, trying to look as indifferent as possible. Finally, he spoke a single word to one of the men, and before he had gone five steps, the man was under arrest. As soon as Wickler was with us again, I had those three men brought in. I made one of them stand forward and said, Now, Wicklow, mind not a shade's divergence from the exact truth. Who is this man, and what do you know about him? Being in for it, he cast consequences aside, fastened his eyes on the man's face, and spoke straight along without hesitation to the following effect. His real name is George Bristow. He is from New Orleans, was second mate of the Coast Packet Capital two years ago, is a desperate character, and has served two terms for manslaughter, one for killing a deckhand named Hyde with a capstan bar, and one for killing a roustabout for refusing to heave the lead, which is no part of a roustabout's business. He is a spy and was sent here by the colonel to act in that capacity. He was third mate of the St. Nicholas when she blew up in the neighborhood of Memphis in 58 and came near being lynched for robbing the dead and wounded while they were being taken ashore in an empty wood boat, and so forth and so on. He gave the man's biography in full. When he had finished, I said to the man, What have you to say to this? Barring your presence, sir, it is the infernalest lie that ever was spoke. I sent him back into confinement and called the others forward in turn. Same result. The boy gave a detailed history of each without ever hesitating for a word or a fact. But all I could get out of either rascal was the indignant assertion that it was all a lie. They would confess nothing. I returned them to captivity and brought out the rest of my prisoners one by one. Wicklow told all about them, what towns in the South they were from, and every detail of their connection with the conspiracy. 
but they all denied the facts and not one of them confessed a thing. The men raged, the women cried. According to their stories, they were all innocent people from out west and loved the Union above all things in this world. I locked the gang up in disgust and fell to catechizing Wicklow once more. Where is number 166 and who is B.B.? But there he was determined to draw the line. Neither coaxing nor threats had any effect on him. Time was flying. It was necessary to institute sharp measures. So I tied him up a tiptoe by the thumbs. As the pain increased, it wrung screams from him, which were almost more than I could bear. But I held my ground, and pretty soon he shrieked out, Oh, please let me down, and I will tell. No, you'll tell before I let you down. Every instant was agony to him now, so out it came. Number 166 Eagle Hotel, naming a wretched tavern down by the water, a resort of common laborers, longshoremen, and less reputable folk. So I released him and then demanded to know the object of the conspiracy. Take the fort tonight, said he, doggedly and sobbing. Have I got all the chiefs of the conspiracy? You've got all except those that are to meet at 166. What does remember XXXX mean? No reply. What is the password to number 166? No reply. What do these bunches of letters mean? FFFFF and MMMM. Answer or you will catch it again. I never will answer. I will die first. Now do what you please. Think what you are saying, Wicklow. Is it final? He answered steadily and without a quiver in his voice. It is final. As sure as I loved my wronged country and hate everything this northern sun shines on, I will die before I will reveal those things. I triced him up by the thumbs again. When the agony was full upon him, it was heartbreaking to hear the poor thing shrieks. But we got nothing else out of him. To every question, he screamed the same reply. I can die and I will die, but I will never tell. Well, we had to give it up. We were convinced that he certainly would die rather than confess. So we took him down and imprisoned him under strict guard. Then for some hours we busied ourselves with sending telegrams to the war department and with making preparations for a descent upon number 166. It was stirring times that black and bitter night. Things had leaked out and the whole garrison was on the alert. The sentinels were troubled and nobody could move outside or in without being brought to a stand with a musket leveled at his head. However, Webb and I were less concerned now than we had previously been, because of the fact that the conspiracy must necessarily be in a pretty crippled condition, since so many of its principles were in our clutches. I determined to be in number 166 in good season, capture and gag BB, and be on hand for the rest when they arrived. At about a quarter past one in the morning, I crept out of the fortress with half a dozen stalwart and gamey U.S. regulars at my heels, and the boy, Wicklow, with his hands tied behind him. I told him we were going to number 166, and that if I found he had lied again and was misleading us, he would have to show us the right place or suffer the consequences. 
we approached the tavern stealthily and reconnoitered. A light was burning in the small bar room, the rest of the house was dark. I tried the front door, it yielded, and we softly entered, closing the door behind us. Then we removed our shoes and I led the way to the bar room. The German landlord sat there, asleep in his chair. I woke him gently and told him to take off his boots and precede us, warning him at the same time to utter no sound. He obeyed without a murmur, but evidently he was Bradley frightened. I ordered him to lead the way to 166. We ascended two or three flights of stairs as softly as a file of cats, and then, having arrived near the farther end of a long hall, we came to a door through the glazed transom of which we could discern the glow of a dim light from within. The landlord felt for me in the dark and whispered to me that that was 166. I tried the door. It was locked on the inside. I whispered an order to one of my biggest soldiers. We sent our ample shoulders to the door, and with one heave we burst it from its hinges. I caught a half-glimpse of a figure in a bed, saw its head dart toward the candle. Out went the light, and we were in pitch darkness. With one big bound I lit on that bed and pinned its occupant down with my knees. My prisoner struggled fiercely, but I got a grip on his throat with my left hand, and that was a good assistance to my knees in holding him down. Then straightway I snatched out my revolver, cocked it, and laid the cold barrel warningly against his cheek. Now somebody strike a light, said I. I've got him safe. It was done. The flame of the match burst up. I looked at my captive, and by George, it was a young woman. I let go and got off the bed, feeling pretty sheepish. Everybody stared stupidly at his neighbor. Nobody had any wit or sense left, so sudden and overwhelming had been the surprise. The young woman began to cry and covered her face with the sheet. The landlord said meekly, My daughter, she has been doing something that is not right, Nicoir. Your daughter? Is she your daughter? Oh, yes, she is my daughter. She is just tonight come home from Cincinnati, a little bit sick. Fount. The boy has lied again. This is not the right 166. This is not BB. Now, Wicklow, you will find the correct 166 for us, or... Hello? Where is that boy? Gone, as sure as guns. And what is more, we failed to find a trace of him. Here was an awkward predicament. I cursed my stupidity in not tying him to one of the men, but it was of no use to bother about that now. What should I do in the present circumstances? That was the question. That girl might be B.B. after all. I did not believe it, but still, it would not answer to take unbelief for proof. So I finally put my men in a vacant room across the hall from 166 and told them to capture anybody and everybody that approached that girl's room and to keep the landlord with them and under strict watch until further orders. Then I hurried back to the fort to see if all was right there yet. Yes, all was right, and all remained right. I stayed up all night to make sure of that. Nothing happened. I was unspeakably glad to see the dawn come again and be able to telegraph the department that the Stars and Stripes still floated over Fort Trumbull. An immense pressure was lifted from my breast. Still, I did not relax vigilance, of course, nor effort either. The case was too grave for that. I had up my prisoners one by one and harried them by the hour, trying to get them to confess, but it was a failure. They only gnashed their teeth and tore their hair and revealed nothing. 
About noon came tidings of my missing boy. He had been seen on the road tramping westward, some eight miles out at six in the morning. I started a cavalry lieutenant and a private on his track at once. They came in sight of him twenty miles out. He had climbed a fence and was wearily dragging himself across a slushy field towards a large old-fashioned mansion in the edge of a village. They rode through a bit of woods, made a detour, and closed up on the house from the opposite side, then dismounted and scurried into the kitchen. Nobody there. They slipped into the next room, which was also unoccupied. The door from that room into the front or sitting room was open. They were about to step through it when they heard a low voice. It was somebody praying. So they halted reverently, and the lieutenant put his head in and saw an old man and an old woman kneeling in a corner of that sitting room. It was the old man who was praying, and just as he was finishing his prayer, the Wicklow boy opened the front door and stepped in. Both of these old people sprang at him and smothered him with embraces, shouting, Our boy! Our darling! God be praised! The lost is found! He that was dead is alive again! Well, sir, what do you think? That young imp was born and reared on that homestead, and had never been five miles away from it in all his life, till the fortnight before he loafed into my quarters and golfed me with that maudlin yarn of his. It's as sure as gospel. That old man was his father, a learned, retired old clergyman, and that old lady was his mother. Let me throw in a word of two or explanation concerning that boy and his performances. It turned out that he was a ravenous devourer of dime novels and sensation story papers. Therefore, dark mysteries and gaudy heroisms were just in his line. Then he had read newspaper reports of the stealthy goings and comings of rebel spies in our midst, and of their lurid purposes and their two or three startling achievements, till his imagination was all aflame on that subject. His constant comrade for some months had been a Yankee youth of much tongue and lively fancy, who had served for a couple of years as a mud clerk, that is, subordinate purser, on certain of the packet boats plying between New Orleans and points two or three hundred miles up the Mississippi hence his easy facility in handling the names and other details pertaining to that region. Now, I had spent two or three months in that part of the country before the war, and I knew just enough about it to be easily taken in by that boy, whereas a born Louisianan would probably have caught him tripping before he had talked fifteen minutes. Do you know the reason he said he would rather die than explain certain of his treasonable enigmas? Simply because he couldn't explain them. They had no meaning. He had fired them out of his imagination without forethought or afterthought, and so, upon sudden call, he wasn't able to invent an explanation of them. For instance, he couldn't reveal what was hidden in the sympathetic ink letter for the ample reason there wasn't anything hidden in it. It was blank paper only. He had anything into a gun, and he never intended to, for his letters were all written to imaginary persons, and when he hid one in the stable, he always removed the one he had put there the day before, so he was not acquainted with that knotted string, since he was seeing it for the first time when I showed it to him, but as soon as I had let him find out where it came from, he straightway adopted it, in his romantic fashion, and got some fine effects out of it. He invented Mr. Gaylord. There wasn't any 15 Bond Street just then. It had been pulled down three months before. He invented the Colonel. 
He invented the glib histories of those unfortunates whom I captured and confronted with him. He invented BB. He even invented number 166. One may say he didn't know there was such a number in the Ego Hotel until we went there. He stood ready to invent anybody or anything whenever it was wanted. If I called for outside spies, he promptly described strangers whom he had seen at the hotel and whose names he had happened to hear. Ah, he lived in a gorgeous, mysterious, romantic world during those few stirring days. And I think it was real to him, and that he enjoyed it cleared down to the bottom of his heart. But he made trouble enough for us, and just no end of humiliation. You see, on account of him, we had fifteen or twenty people under arrest and confinement in the fort, with sentinels before their doors. A lot of the captives were soldiers and such, and to them I didn't have to apologize. But the rest were first-class citizens from all over the country, and no amount of apologies was sufficient to satisfy them. They just fumed and raged and made no end of trouble. And those two ladies. One was an Ohio congressman's wife, the other a western bishop's sister. Well, the scorn and ridicule and angry tears they poured out on me made up a keepsake that was likely to make me remember them for a considerable time. And I shall. That old lame gentleman with the goggles was a college president from Philadelphia, who had come up to attend his nephew's funeral. He had never seen young Wicklow before, of course. Well, he not only missed the funeral and got jailed as a rebel spy, but Wicklow had stood up there in my quarters and coldly described him as a counterfeiter, traitor, horse thief, and firebug from the most notorious rascal nest in Galveston. And this was a thing that that poor old gentleman couldn't seem to get over at all. And the War Department. But oh my soul, let's draw the curtain over that part. Note, I showed my manuscript to the Major, and he said, Your unfamiliarity with military matters has betrayed you into some little mistakes. Still, they are picturesque ones. Let them go. Military men will smile at them, the rest won't detect them. You've got the main facts of the history right, and have set them down just about as they occurred. Sometimes your imagination can get the better of you, and when it gets the better of you, it can get the better of other people, because they're all caught up in the whirlwind of your imaginary world. Maybe you need something better to read. Like something from Amazon. They've got thousands of books for you to put on a Kindle, and you can read to your heart's content. Just don't let your imagination get the better of you. Enter BVJ in the promo code, and it will do absolutely nothing, because this is not a sponsor to read. I would like to remind you that we are always on the lookout for great public domain stories, just like this one, to feature on the show. If you know of any, please let me know. BigVoiceJ at gmail.com We're also on YouTube, tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep each and every night. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) 